Good morning, friends. Anyone excited to be in church this morning? Where are you? <laughs> welcome, welcome. I know some of us are away on spring break, and we are checking the live feed for all of you that promised that you would be watching on Facebook. If you don't check in, it didn't count. All right? It didn't count. Uh, good morning. My name is Jeff Hughes, and I don't know if we haven't met. Uh, I serve as the Connections Pastor here, and simply put, is that's an opportunity for me to help you connect both with other people in our church connect with God, and just uh, plug into our family here. And so if any of those things are right where you're living, or maybe all those things, um, find me after service, or you can stop by our Welcome Center and let them know, um, just write a note, have Pastor Jeff call me, email me, whatever. We'll love to uh, help you plug into uh, Union Chapel. There are amazing things going on in this church right now, and I don't have a lot of time to share those, but I want to just share um, briefly that you know that in your bulletin, you're going to see these shoulder-to-shoulder talking points. And what's been happening through the last several weeks is that people have been taking these shoulder-to-shoulder talking points that go with the messages, and they've been meeting over coffee, over lunch, uh, in break rooms, just on, on times where they can cut out of work for a minute, and they're sharing life and talking about what God is doing in our family. And so if you have not jumped on board with what everybody's doing with this, it's not too late. Um, all you need to do is grab that, connect with somebody who's watching or will see the message, and get together. You can do it on the phone or face-to-face or whatever. We prefer you to sit down and just share life with one another because as we're doing that, man, God is just doing awesome stuff in relationships and in our small groups and in our church. So make sure that you take advantage of that. Well, we're continuing this series called Shoulder to Shoulder, and I'm very excited about where we've been. Let me just recap just a little bit for the last uh, couple of weeks. So week one, we talked about a word of forgiveness, and I want to ask you to raise your hand if how you're doing on forgiving the people in your life that are hurt, hurt you or whatever, uh, but that was a powerful, powerful talk. Um, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, week two, a word of salvation. We looked at the thief that was hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And how Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And how he heard those words just minutes, I believe, right before he was in paradise. And so just a phenomenal message there. And then last week, a word on relationship. We talked about how Jesus' mother actually watched him be crucified. Now, parents, can you get there? Can you think about that? Can you, like, wrap your mind around that? That he was, she was there just... just feet away from him, seeing what was going on. And in that moment, in this word of relationship, how, how Jesus then says to John, uh, behold your mother and behold your son, basically um, saying to him, hey, uh, take care of mama while I'm out and I'll be back. Um, and just a very, very awesome uh, talk there as well on relationship and, and what Jesus has to say for us there. And now in week four, this morning, we'll look at a word of distress, a word of distress And so I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 19 and make your way on your mobile device or your your scriptures there and stand as we look at this text where Jesus says, I am thirsty. We're going to look at John 19, 28 to 37. Thank you for standing. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. 
Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came to break the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. Verse 33, But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. Verse 36, these things happen so the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I want you to look somebody in the eyes nearby, and I want you to say, let's walk shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. Do that to a couple people, and then grab a seat right there. Thank you so much. Let's walk shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. So Jesus' first three words from the cross were centered on other people. They were focused on others, his enemies and Father forgive them, the believing thief and today you'll be with me in paradise, and John and Mary in take care of each other. So what we see immediately from that is that Jesus focused on other people first while he was going to the cross, while he was having his mission to die on the cross for us. Let's look at verse 28 because I want us to see the very first word from verse 28. And the word is knowing, knowing that everything had been finished. You see, I think this is really interesting because certainly Jesus knew that he was already thirsty in this moment. I mean, he he was thirsty in, in this moment, but he laid down his own desire for the sake of others because he knew what was going on. And he knew that it was just moments, just seconds from being totally finished, as we see in the verses to follow. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus is actually given um, an alcoholic-type beverage, a a drink of something. It was was myrrh. It was mixed with wine. It was to help kind of help the people on the cross not experience the pain as much. Jesus refuses that. I think something's really interesting with that. It's almost as if that Jesus wanted to go through it all and, and doing anything that would numb his senses was not taking the full advantage of experiencing his death on the cross. And and I know it's kind of strange, it's hard for us to even grasp what it would be like, but Jesus rejects that drink there. But in his last three statements from the cross, he moves inward and he's focusing more on himself. His body, where he says, I thirst in John chapter 19. His soul, when he says, it is finished in John 19.30. And then also we see that in Isaiah chapter 53. And his spirit, when he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit in Luke 23. So body, soul, and spirit. It's like he had to bring all he had to this moment because it took everything that he had to pay for and cover the sins of all of humanity. And rightly so, right? So Jesus brought everything he had. And in the shortest statement made of Jesus on the cross, I thirst, in John 19, 28, In its original text, it's actually just one word, and it has four letters. And so it's very, very brief. And it's the only statement that Jesus refers to his physical body and his physical suffering. I thirst. Have you ever thought about this? 
There's a little bit of irony in this. Jesus is in this moment when he's been mocked, he's been sentenced, all kinds of things. They cast lot for, lots for his clothes. Um, he's flogged, he's scourged, all of these things. And he's in the process of being crucified. And he says, I thirst. So think about that. The same voice, the same mouth that spoke into existence, the seas, now needs a drink. The one who was able to walk on top of the water and turn water into wine at will is now thirsty. The same voice that told the Red Sea to part and there was dry land. One part of the sea over here, one part of the sea over here now needs a drink. He's the one who says, I am living water. And now he is in this moment when he's thirsty. How can that be? How could the same God say, I thirst, who created all of these things, spoke water into existence, walked on water, parted the seas? Well, I want to propose today to us that in these two words, I thirst, that there are actually three important things that we can see about our Savior. And the first is Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. If you've got your app, you can open the mobile app, you can plug that in, you can also write it down on the notes that are in your bulletin. But Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. While Jesus was divine, he was also human. You see, because Jesus walked upon this earth, he was definitely acquainted with the difficulties of life. When he was a child, I believe Jesus had skin knees. I believe he made mud pies. I believe that Jesus knew what it was like to not be in the in crowd. I think working in the family woodworking shop, Jesus probably got a splinter or two in his finger. So he knew that pain. Now think about that. Here's boyhood Jesus. He's got a splinter in his finger and he's experiencing pain working that splinter out. You know, God has kind of a funny sense of humor. Um, Earlier this week, I was walking and uh, I had just socked feet on. I was walking over a spot of our house that had a little rough wood or whatever. I got this big splinter in my foot. And I thought, all right, okay, God, I get it. I couldn't get it out. It was one of those that was like in there that was there for a little bit. I know. And eventually, you know, it gets out and all that. But I'm thinking through how Jesus actually did these things. How Picture this. He's in the woodworking shop. He hits his thumb with a hammer. Only he doesn't say what you say. (laughs) Ah. He was a man who knew what it was like to grow tired, to be cold, to sweat. He knew hunger. He knew thirst, as we see. Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he spent these three hours up on a hillside with the sun just beating down on him. He hadn't had anything to drink for probably 12 hours or so. Can you imagine this? Painful. Do you know how important water is to your body? Water is way, way important. However important you think water is, it's more important. The water in your body actually determines the vitality of your health determines how well you're living, Uh, your daily living could be associated with how much or how little water intake you have. If you're having problems, drink a glass of water. It'll help you. Did you know your your body's actually two-thirds water? Two-thirds water. Your body actually absorbs cold water easier than it does hot water. And by the time you're 70 years old, your body requires one and a half million gallons of water. It's a lot of water. There's some of the other services who tried to say, no, my body runs on Mountain Dew. 
So no, you're mistaken. But if you lose just 2% of your body's water supply, your energy will actually drop by 20%. Just 2% change, 20% drop in your energy. A 10% decrease in in your water, and you're unable to walk. You get to a 20% decrease of the amount of water in your body, and you are dead. 20%. Water is critical to human survival. And here is Jesus saying, I thirst. You know, I think he says, I thirst to help connect with us. I think we all know what it's like to thirst. I ran about 25 steps the other day. I was really thirsty afterwards. (laughs) We know what thirst is. And here's Jesus connecting with us because he says, I thirst from the cross. I heard a story of an airline flight that was experiencing heavy turbulence. Of course, this is no crazy thing right now. You see this on the news all the time. And what's going on? Like, can't we keep the planes in the sky or don't put them there? It's like that, right? And and this plane is experiencing heavy turbulence, which, as you can imagine, would create this this turmoil for, for the passengers. People are thrown about in their seats, the overhead uh, cabin bins spring open and there's luggage beginning to fall and bag going everywhere. And this soothing voice comes over the intercom, the microphone. He says, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain from the flight deck. There's no need to worry. You see, these bumps, they're actually made of air. Well, here's the reality. In a plane, the bumps when they're air, it's all good. But when it's the ground or a mountainside, or a tree, it's a different situation. And sometimes in our lives, we wish that we just soared, you know, hit a little turbulence. Oh, okay, that was nice. We're good. The captain's got this under control. But in our lives, it's bumpy. It's bumpy. Right now, all across this room and all weekend, I've looked people in the face and talked about this, knowing full well that there are people right here who are facing the biggest challenge they've ever faced in their life right now this morning. Maybe that's you. What I want you to know this morning is that Jesus knows the bumps in your life. He knows the situation. He knows the turbulence. He knows what's going on. He feels the bumps with us. And as he lived his life on earth, he felt pain. And now we can be assured that he knows and experiences the heartache Friends, the things you stress about, the things you worry about, the anxiety that's caused in our lives so much as Americans, Jesus knows about that. And he is a sympathetic savior who wants to step into that relationship and say, come on, child, come on. He knows and he understands. And that's what I love about Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. We'll put it up there on the screen for you. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Now, we can stop there. We can stop there, and that is so rich, but let's go on with the rest of the verse. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. Yes, that includes the ways you are tempted. But he did not sin. Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. There's someone here in the room here this morning, and and right there, like, that's why you're here. You're here because you needed to hear the words, Jesus is a sympathetic Savior, and he cares about your needs. One of Denmark's leading sculptors had this burning desire to create the greatest statue of Jesus ever made. 
He began by shaping this clay mold into a triumphant and regal figure. The head was thrown back. The arms were upright in this gesture of great majesty. It was his conception of Christ the King, strong, dominant, regal, majestic. He looked back and he said, this, this is my masterpiece. Look at that. That was on the day it was completed. He went home thinking, well done, but little did he know that during the night, a heavy fog would roll in from the sea spray nearby, and there was a partially open window into this artist's studio. The moisture affected the shape of this clay model, so much so that when the artist returned the next morning, he was shocked to find a wounded clay figure. The droplets of moisture had formed all around the statue, creating the illusion of bleeding. The head had drooped. The facial expression had been transformed from one of triumph to one of compassion. The arms had dropped from upright and bold to this attitude of welcome and caring and receiving. The artist stared at this figure and thought, oh man, I've completely messed up. With no time to begin again, here is what I've got. And it's a wreck. Then suddenly his mood changed. He stepped away and he said, wait, 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 wait. Maybe this is the true image of Christ. He decided to abandon the title that he was going to name it, something of valor and righteousness and something of Christ, the the great significant one, and named it, come unto me, come unto me. And friends, that's the invitation this morning from a wounded Savior who is sympathetic towards whatever's going on in your life. He says, come unto me. Bring your baggage. Bring your situation. Bring the bumps in your life. I can handle it. Come unto me. Jesus is a sympathetic Savior who longs to take you in his arms and show you his love today. And friends, he wants true relationship with you. I talk with folks all the time and they say, you know, I grew up in church. I ought to have this by now. I ought to understand this. But church was a lot of religion. And and you ask them this question. When you see Jesus, what do you picture? And what do you think of? What are some of the words? And some of the words are often condemnation, shame, guilt. When they see a picture of Jesus, they would think and they would picture one with a stern look pointing their finger at him. When in reality, that is not the picture of Jesus Christ. The picture of Jesus Christ is a wounded Savior who sympathetically opens his arms and says, come on, come on. And so my challenge to you is to reject that notion of a religious situation and have a true spiritual encounter, a true relationship with Jesus Christ who longs to know you and for you to know him. Here's the second point of this message. Jesus is a scriptural savior. He's scriptural. So back from John 19, 28, when Jesus says, knowing that everything had been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Let's look at that so scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus saying, I thirst in John 19 reminds us of his extensive knowledge of the prophetic scriptures concerning the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and his ability to fulfill all of those just by who he was. You see, in Jesus saying, I thirst, he fulfilled several 
scriptural prophecies. And I want to just look in the book of Psalms for a moment. If you have a physical copy of the Bible, just crack it open right in the middle. You're going to be in the book of Psalms and you can check that out. Uh, so let's look at this. If you're, if you're new to Psalms, one of the things that I would add is it's a collection of inspired worship to God. And so if you're having one of those moments where you're just not connecting with God, where you feel distant from God, crack open the book of Psalms and just read through those. It is, it is a song of worship to our God. But let's look at just uh, one, one verse here in, in Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 69, 21, where we see these words. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So it was predicted and it was prophesied that the Messiah would be given vinegar to drink. And what do we see that happens next to Jesus? Okay, in our text today from John 19, we read that a jar of what? A jar of wine vinegar is given to Jesus on a sponge when he thirsts. And so it's prophesied that he would drink vinegar before he dies. And in this moment, one of the final ones, right before he gives up his life completely, he says, I thirst, and he's given vinegar. So you might think, okay, no big deal. All right, that, there's a scriptural correlation. All right, but so what? That could just be coincidence, right? One thing you might not know is that there are, in the Old Testament, over 300 distinct, specific predictions which are literally fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Over 300. Of course, some object to the idea that these prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus are evidence of him being who he says that he really is, the Son of God and the only Savior of men. And these objections primarily fall into two categories, which I want to talk about just briefly. The first is that fulfilled prophecy in Jesus was deliberate. That is, he saw a checklist, he knew the questions on the test, and so and he had the answers so he could fulfill those prophecies, right? Essentially, it was all a setup, if you will. The second is that fulfilled prophecy in Jesus was just a coincidence, that Jesus just so happened to fulfill the 300-plus prophecies about the Messiah's life. So let's look at those. The problem with the first objection is that many of these prophecies concerning the Messiah were totally beyond human control. And you see this in your notes. For example, here's the first one, the place of his birth. Micah chapter 5 states that there is a promised ruler who will come out of Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. What about the time of his birth? The second thing from Daniel 9.25 and Genesis 49.10, that the Messiah would arrive before the destruction of the second temple. The manner of his birth, we see in Isaiah 7, 14, that he would be from the tribe of Judah. You probably are familiar with the Christmas story in Luke. It's read many times in Advent that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus. The fourth thing, the manner of his death in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, You see, it was foretold that the Messiah would be tortured. And of course, we know the truth about Jesus there. They have pierced his hands and feet, and he was crucified. It was also foretold in Isaiah 52 and 53 that the Messiah's life would match a particular description, that it would include suffering, that it would include silence at his arrest and trial. It would include death in a rich man's tomb, though he would not be a rich man, that he would be dead, crucified, and resurrected, which is kind of a big deal, dead for three days and back to life. So as you can see, these things could not be deliberate because they were beyond human control. So the problem with the second objection, the idea that these fulfilled prophecies would just be coincidence, is that it's just not probable. 
It's just not probable. Let me explain. In 1957, Moody Press from Chicago, Illinois, not far from here, published a book by Professor Peter W. Stoner called Science Speaks, an evaluation of certain Christian evidences. And in this book, the good professor demonstrated how coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. He states that by using the science of probability in reference to only eight, now remember, there were over 300, but in using this science of probability in reference to only eight of the Old Testament uh, prophecies, we find that the probability of anyone, even up to present time, fulfilling just eight of the 300 plus prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion. It's a real number. I had to look it up. It's one followed by 17 zeros. It's a big number. He goes on because I was having a hard time understanding how big of a number that is. And so I love his illustration. He says, suppose that we take 100 quadrillion silver dollars and we line them all over the state of Texas. We cover the face of the great state with silver dollars. It would be two feet deep. Get that. Like picture that. Ever driven in Texas? It's a long way to anywhere. Two feet deep, silver dollars all over the state. Have someone choose one silver dollar, color it red, put an X on it, indicate it somehow, hide it among all of these silver dollars all over the state, bring one man, put a blindfold on him, tell him he can go anywhere in the state and he can pick one silver dollar. Do you know the odds of him picking that one silver dollar that we indicated? I'm glad you asked. One in 100 quadrillion. It's amazing. Amazing. So what about the 300 plus prophecies for Jesus? What are the odds of that being fulfilled? It's incalculable. There's no way to even wrap our mind around that, that a person could have these things foretold about them and that they could be fulfilled in their life. Jesus is a scriptural savior. So let me step away from the science and the prophecy of it and make this statement, which I believe with all of my heart. The strongest evidence that Jesus can do what he's promised in your life and mine is that he fulfilled what was foretold about his life. Let that sink in. Let that soak into your bones because there are a lot of things that Jesus has promised that we go, oh, I don't know. I don't know if you can do it. Or we believe that he can do it for other people. But then when it comes to us, we go, I don't, I don't think so. Like, you, you, don't, you don't know me. You don't know my situation. Well, the odds of Jesus being able to fulfill what he says in your life, oh, your life's a piece of cake compared to his, right? He knows your story. Jesus is not only a sympathetic savior, he's a scriptural savior. And you can trust him with your life today. And maybe you need to do that for the first time. Or maybe for the hundredth time, you need to say, man, I, I've strayed. I'm thirsty and I need to come to you. Well, here's point three to conclude this message. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. He's a sufficient Savior. Jesus was thirsty because of the physical agony he was experiencing. He had just come through the three hours of darkness, which he had all the sins of the world laid upon his back. Can I remind you that your sins were there? So were mine. And thank God, all of our sins were laid upon the back of Jesus. 
He had just finished paying the price for all of our sins through this spiritual suffering. And he was and he is the only one sufficient in all of humanity, in all of time to do so. There never has been, there never will be another one who will compare and be sufficient to do that. During those three hours, Jesus was abandoned, totally given up, forsaken. And he experienced hell so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced hell so you don't have to. He was dried up just as the Old Testament burnt offerings were totally consumed. And he endured God's fiery wrath. He thirsted both physically and spiritually in those moments. But there is good news. Does anybody need some good news in this moment and in your life? You see, there is no thirst in heaven. And there is no spiritual thirst on earth. Because we come to Jesus and he satisfies. He gives us everything we need because he is a sufficient Savior who will step into our lives and satisfy our thirst for him. When Jesus died, a soldier put a spear into the side of his cavity and out flowed blood and water. Death took the very last bit of water out of the water of life, if you will. Death thought it had won. Oh, no. You see, on that day, for the first time ever, death met innocence. Death met righteousness. Death was murdered with a kill shot between the eyes when the living water said, I am thirsty. We see in Revelation seven sixteen, never again. Now, let's not move too fast through that. Never. Ever, 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 ever. Never again, never, ever, ever again, never again. Okay, get it? Never again. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Grab a hold of it. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. They will never hunger or thirst again. How amazing is that? It's phenomenal. The last invitation that we receive in the scriptures is from Revelation twenty-two seventeen, and it says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. Pick it up, grab it, take it, hold it with all you have. The water of life. Let me shift gears in this message and tell you something about my dog. I have a dog. He's a Papillon Chihuahua. He's a little squirt mutt. Got a picture of him? Yeah, that's Chico. Um, We've had Chico for about 15 or 16 years. Uh, He's a good dog most of the time. Um, He was not a good dog last night in the middle of the night, which is why I'm a little tired this morning. Something happened that I only saw from the dining room looking into the kitchen, and I believe we have another picture of that, and we'll put that up there for you now to see. Um, We have it? It'll come in just a minute. I look in there and I see Chico on his back feet with his front feet up on our water dispenser. Is it up there? It's up there. And he pushes the little spout with his nose. Water comes down and he drinks water. I'm the smartest dog in the world. I have the stupidest owner in the world, this guy. Because I realized why he had to do that. 
Because you see that water bowl that's just like a, a foot or so away? It was bone dry. Nothing. My daughter probably took a bath in it or something. Who knows? <laughs> but here's the key. My dog was thirsty, and he knew where to go for water was his water bowl, but that was, that was empty. And so he found a place that had water and was willing to do anything it takes to get it. How about you? Let's bring this into a spiritual connection to us because maybe you can, you can relate to this next statement that I want to put up on the screen. We all experience times of deep distress in our lives, times of spiritual thirst, if you will. And the reason is we, the, the reason we never escape the feeling of being unsatisfied is because we are drinking from the wrong wells. I don't have to name them. You know them. I go to them, you go to them all the time. It's the well that we go to to quench our thirst when we're not turning to Jesus. And what do we find? We find that it's empty. We find that it's lacking. We find that it's contaminated. It doesn't have what we need. And so what we need to do, can't believe I'm going to say this, is be like my dog. And we need to find the place where true living water flows. And we need to go to it and do whatever it takes. Now, you know the awesome thing about coming to Jesus You don't have to jump through a lot of hoops. You just got to say, here I am. Here I am, God. I surrender. Come into my life. Meet me. And he'll do that. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters and you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's free. It's a free gift. We will never thirst again. Come to the living water. Have you come to grips with the fact that you need to satisfy your spiritual thirst and that there is only one way to do that and that's by knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ. Come to the well that is living water. It's not dried up, it's living. One last story. I spent 17 years in youth ministry here at Union Chapel. And if you're curious about how many bus trips and van trips and uh, different trips uh, around the sun you feel like you take with that, it's one in 100 quadrillion. <laughs> and I spent time on every, every bus, van, everything we own, everything we can rent within 500 miles. On mission trips, camps, retreats, all kinds of things around the country. Loved it. So fun. It's amazing. And the work that our guys do with, with 180 is just phenomenal. So if your kids aren't plugged in, get them plugged into 180. Great, great stuff going on there. And so I'm sitting on a charter bus on this trip. And I love to sit right by the driver because charter bus story uh, drivers have a lot of stories. They've, they've seen a lot of things. They've been around the world literally and they know a lot. And so I'm sitting there and this charter bus guy is chatted up and I said, hey, uh, tell me like, what's the thing you hate the most of this job? It was cold out and so I expected maybe it was filling the bus with diesel in January and, you know, being out in the cold or, or washing the bus or something like that. And he says, you know, Jeff, the thing that I really hate the most is I, I hate cleaning the restroom, the toilet in the back of the bus. And, you know, I'm the only staff on this bus is it. So we do it. We clean the, clean the toilet. And I said, yeah, I, I'd hate that too because I've been back there with some high school guys. It's not, not pleasant. And, and he said, but I've discovered a, a toilet cleaning hack if you will. 
He said, on our bus, we have a five-gallon bucket that's underneath the bus, and it has this blue toilet clean chemical, and you're supposed to carry the five-gallon bucket up through the bus, carry it back there, swash it around, pour it in there, and all that, and it just makes a mess. It's hard to do. It's heavy. It's not pleasant. It's not fun, but he said, I've discovered a hack. I said, go on, do tell. You never know when you might find yourself in a scenario where this could be helpful. And he said, if you get a 20-ounce Gatorade bottle just like this and you take it down there under the bus and you dip it in that toilet cleaning chemical and you fill it, it will clean the toilet much better. You can put it in there. You can dip it. It's easy. It's not pouring something. I said, all right, yeah, that's awesome. So what what happened next was really interesting because he started kind of mumbling. I had to lean in, and I realized he didn't want to incriminate himself But I was listening close, and here's what he said. He said, I had a little bit of that liquid left. I had dumped some more, and the bottle was just about full. And and we had a shift change, and there was a new driver coming on, and I left my uh, blue Gatorade bottle there, and so it was sitting right there. And a a new driver comes on, and, uh, oh, no, he didn't drink it. No, he put it in the ice chest cooler right there for the drivers. And so here's this Gatorade. That's not Gatorade. This new driver comes on, they get to a rest stop, it's lunchtime, he pulls out his lunch, everyone's getting their lunch, he cracks open that blue Gatorade, pulls it out of there, takes a big drink of it, mmm, woo, only that was not Gatorade. That driver had to be rushed in an ambulance to the emergency room, have his stomach pumped because he was vomiting profusely on that roadside. So why do I tell you that? Here's the point. Either willingly or unwillingly, sometimes we drink the wrong thing. How many times in your life have you gone to the wrong well? It's been contaminated. It's left you sick. It's left you upset. When in reality, we have to come to living water. And the only way to know that it is living water is to come directly to Jesus on your own. We have a choice today. We have an opportunity. We can either realize that Jesus is a sympathetic Savior, a scriptural Savior, and that He is a sufficient Savior, or we can continue trying to satisfy our thirst at wells that will only leave us contaminated or empty. So what about you? Where are you today? Are you going to the well that's bone dry, it's empty? Or are you drinking contaminated water? come to Jesus. The way you do that is just say, I surrender. Just say, I surrender to you, God. Jesus, be real. Be real in my life. I want to know you. And that's it. Will you stand up with me? Let's pray for just a moment. Father, you know our needs today, every single one of us. You're closely connected to the things that both make us smile and the things that bring us sorrow here in this room this morning. Thank you for the words of Revelation 22:17 that say, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And Lord, forgive us when we've gone to so many other places to find what we need to cure our thirst. And this morning, I pray for my friends gathered in this place who need to come to you For the first time or the hundredth time, let us come to you, Jesus, the source of living water. Fill this place with your presence and draw us into who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.